J.I. Packer, the famous theologian and author, once explained the major differences between optimism and Christian hope. He said, optimism hopes for the best without any guarantee of its arriving and is often no more than whistling in the dark. Christian hope, by contrast, is faith looking ahead to the fulfillment of the promises of God. Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with confidence on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And so as we reflect on the resurrection this morning, we will see that, the, that Peter calls the persecuted church not to optimism, but to hope. And so this Easter, we have the great privilege to be stirred by the same reality because of Jesus' death and resurrection. So because of what he has accomplished, we live life with Christian hope. We can have confidence that the best is yet to come. And so with that said, turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to be looking in, starting in verse 18. And if you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find our passage on page 1014. And while you're turning there, feel free to look at your outline, and you'll notice that we have three main points this morning. Number one, a precious ransom. Number two, a glorious resurrection. And number three, a purposeful resurrection. So let's begin by reading 1 Peter. We're going to start in verse 17 and read through verse 21. It says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now it's important for us this morning to begin by looking at A, the context of the letter. So Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, is writing in times of persecution, and his audience is experiencing ridicule and discrimination due to their allegiance to the Lord Jesus. And as you can imagine, they're pretty distraught. They're anxious. They're weighed down by their mistreatment. And so what Peter does is he writes to this church to strengthen their faith, to strengthen their joy in the Lord while they endure hardship. And how does he strengthen their hearts and minds? Well, by showcasing the hope that they have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's according to God's mercy that these Christians are born again through the resurrection of Christ. It's purposed and kept by God himself. But Peter goes a step further to expound expound on exactly how these truths stir their joy. Look at verse 6. He writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So what do they rejoice in? Although this is coming to verses 3 through 5, they rejoice in the hope that they have through the resurrection. Because Jesus was raised, an inheritance awaits them, which is guarded by God's power. Right? So even while they're experiencing suffering, they can have joy. They can have peace because their hope is rooted in what Jesus has accomplished on their behalf. So that's not all that Peter says. No, then Peter goes into verses 13 through 17, and he highlights the appropriate response to their new life in Christ. It's not only a life of joy, but the truth of what Jesus has done for them inflames their awe of God, that they'd be holy and set apart, ready for when he's revealed. So that's the proper response of those who are in Christ, who are in Christ enduring difficulty. And so this morning, I want us to zero in on these truths concerning the gospel, because according to Peter, their knowledge and trust in the gospel, namely the resurrection of Christ, is the basis of their hope, their awe, and their joy. And so B, the great price of their ransom. Let's look together in verse 18. It says, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. So those who have new life in Christ are those who conduct themselves in awe of God. Knowing what? They know that they were ransomed from their futile ways. But what does it mean exactly for them to be ransomed from futile futile ways? Well, first, the word ransom here means to be liberated, to be freed, to be purchased. Now, we need to be clear, this liberation, this purchasing, is not like if we were to go to the pet store and buy a goldfish, freeing them from their pet store captivity. That is not the idea. No, this is an exodus kind of ransoming. This is God liberating, freeing, redeeming a people out of bondage to sin. And so what exactly were they ransomed, liberated from? They're ransomed from the futile or empty ways inherited from your forefathers. So those who have new life in Christ are ransomed from their empty, foolish, sinful ways, just as was inherited from generation after generation of sinful men. You see, every family tree throughout the entirety of of the world's existence has been plagued by the same problem. The same empty ways. We are sinners. Every one of us. We are not sinners because we sin. No, we sin because we are sinners. 
We are sinners. Not because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. That's what the Bible tells us. Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 18 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That's us apart from Christ. Hardness of heart, futility of our minds, alienated from the life of God. And so believers in the Lord Jesus have been ransomed from that empty, sinful way. And and what happens is Peter creates a negative, positive contrast here. The Christian is liberated, not with perishable things. But what exactly are the perishable things that Peter has in mind? Look at verse 18. Not with silver or gold. So they've been ransomed from their sin. But as we know, the purchase, the ransom price for the Christian is not with silver or gold. Now, all of us in this room would be clear to say that silver and gold in this area of life, right, in the world, it has great value here, right? My grandfather loves buying silver. We love this stuff. People buy and sell it. They hoard it. They prize all of these coins. But why can't the ransom for sinners be made with these precious items? Well, it's because silver and gold perish. They erode. They are fleeting treasures. They don't last. Silver and gold are precious here on earth, but they are not imperishable. And so a perishable ransoming, a price paid with physical, earthly material, fades away. It rots. It's destroyed. It can't possibly ransom sinners from death. So money is not the means of this liberation. But in contrast, Peter tells us, the ransom for sinners has come at the price of God's only Son. It's come at the price of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, an imperishable, eternal, and infinitely valuable treasure. And that's what Peter tells us in verse 19. Not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So it's the blood of Jesus that has ransomed the people of God from their sin. But what exactly makes the blood of Jesus so precious? How can Peter actually say his precious blood in verse 19? Well, Leviticus 17.11 says that the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, because it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So this isn't some blood oath. It's not some mystical power that makes amends for sin. No, the shedding of blood shows us that the Lord Jesus died for sinners. Atonement was necessary. And so it's Christ's shed blood that God's people are ransomed, that they're liberated. The Lord Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. What we deserve to die, he bore 
our sin and death on the cross. Isaiah 53, 5 says, By his wounds, by his blood, we are healed. We are spiritually set free from sin. We are healed. And so get this. Jesus died. He paid the ransom price for sin. He provides an imperishable ransom. The Lord Jesus' blood is of infinite value to liberate us from our sin forever. He is the perfect, sufficient, and forever Savior of His people. We declare this on Easter morning. Infinite, valuable ransom. Now, Peter's building the argument here, right? That the people of God are to be in awe of God because the Lord has ransomed them not with money, not with perishable stuff like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. But you'll notice in the text that there's a purity to this ransoming of his people, isn't there? Yes, the ransom is pure, which means the price for sin is paid by innocent, sinless blood which is demonstrated in verse 19b, right? He says, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now notice that Peter uses a figure of speech to make the connection between the purity of the sacrifice for sin to that of a spotless lamb. Why does he do that? Well, because that's the picture that is given throughout the entirety of Scripture. That's what's seen in the Old Testament, So Peter's using imagery from Isaiah 53, the Passover lamb, and even the entire sacrificial system to depict this idea that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the fulfillment of the once and for all sacrifice for sin. He's the sacrifice. And so the need for a sacrifice is one thing, but the text tells us that it is a spotless pure, blameless sacrifice, like a blameless lamb that's needed to deal with the sin of man. You know, Candace and I directed youth camps in eastern Quebec for several years during like dog days of summer. I know it doesn't seem like Canada could get hot, but it does, right? But one thing is clear at camp, uh, sweat and filth cover children, The workers, but certainly the children. And as many of you parents know, uh, kids sometimes refuse to take showers, which is quite a problem. So what we would do is we'd try and incentivize their hygiene. We would create a massive slip and slide that ran into the pond, and we'd give them soap. This is a true story. For years and years, we'd give them soap, and they'd get all excited, and they would lather it all over themselves, and you're going to go down the slide, and you're going to go into the pond. It's going to be so cool. You're going to go so fast. And they're like, great. It's awesome. So we'd give them the soap. They'd scrub themselves down. They'd slide all the way into the camp pond. A dirty, stinky, horse manure-filled pond. (laughs) That's right. So they had the appearance of cleanliness. But the problem was that when they got out, they smelt no better than they did when they put the soap on their bodies. Why? Because the slip and slide sanitation station was of no lasting effect. It didn't work. I had to sleep in a room with these kids. It never worked. It had the appearance of cleanliness but they were just as unclean as they were before they ever touched a drop of soap. Filth, sweat, 
and body odor couldn't be masked by the addition of more filth, dirt, and stench. But listen to this. Jesus isn't like that pond. He's the pure and spotless lamb of God. He makes the unclean clean. He makes the sinner blameless. The price of sin covered by limitless and unwavering holiness. There's no stain. There's no stench. There's no tarnish. There's no imperfection. Why? Let's be clear. Jesus is God. He's the God-man who came to take care of our sin on our behalf. He's entirely perfect in all way and fashion. And so Christ's sinless life qualifies him to die for the sin of his people, to truly wash away sin. So because this is true, the statement that we've seen constantly from John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. That's 100% true. That's what the Bible says. Psalm 103, verse 11. It fleshes this, out, this reality out even more. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he, the Lord Jesus, remove our transgressions from us. We could not say that or declare that or proclaim that if it wasn't true that he was entirely perfect and blameless. That's what this blameless lamb has done. He has removed our sin from us through his blameless, sinless, perfect sacrifice for sinners like me and you. What matchless love. Now just pause for a moment with me. Look what Peter's showing us here. The beauty of God's plan is to redeem people from every nation, tribe, and tongue throughout the entire earth. That's been his plan. And so right now in this world, there's a lot going on if you haven't noticed. But our biggest problem on this planet isn't an illness. It isn't a dictator. It isn't threats of war. It isn't family strife. It isn't even your bank account. Now our biggest problem is sin. And sin separates us from a holy God. The one who created us is worthy to be worshipped, and we fail to worship him as Lord. Instead, what do we do? We run after other things. We worship creatures rather than the creator. And so apart from Christ, we deserve death. Every one of us. But look what Christ provides for those that put their trust in him. He provides himself. There's no other lamb that he even desires to send. God, the Father, sent his blameless son, the Lamb of God, to be slain, to be slaughtered for the sake of his people. He can do for you what you could never do for yourself. He dies in the place of sinners that they might enjoy him forever. Relationship restored. Peace with God and not eternal judgment. You see, God's in the business of saving sinners. And so if you're here this morning 
and you have not yet put your faith and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, then I'm here to tell you this morning that you are living on borrowed time. The creator and sustainer of the universe bids you to come, to die, to turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus, the one who's sufficient to save you forever. And God's word tells us that if you come, you trust in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved from judgment and death. And so I plead with you, if you do not know him as Lord, that you would believe on the Lord Jesus. And it, the Bible's clear. You will be saved forever because of what he's done. What a gift that he offers even this day, over 2,000 years later. Unbelievable. And so Peter recalls the marvelous ransom that was paid on the believer's behalf. They were ransomed by the spotless Lamb of God. But now... Peter turns to show how the Lord Jesus was purposely made known and risen from the dead. And so he did that specific purpose for his glory and for our eternal good. And so to see that, I want to look at point two, a glorious resurrection. So look with me at verses 20 through 21. It says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now verse 20 begins by identifying the plan for the Lamb to come and liberate, redeem his people. So God the Father destined that before time began, the Lord Jesus would come at a specific time in history in a specific manner to redeem men and women, young and old, from sin and death. How cool is that? Man, not only did God plan it, but it actually happened. The Lamb appeared. Peter says that the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, was made manifest in the last times. He came and dwelt in bodily flesh. Just like we hear in John chapter 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus came and faithfully died. And who did he die for, according to the text? Verse 20, for the sake of you. Now just remember, Peter's writing to Christians that have been exiled. They're being persecuted by the Roman Empire. And during difficulty and persecution, they're reminded of this fact. Jesus came, and he died for their sake. That's beautiful. I mean, what an encouragement for this broken, beaten, and battered people. And what an encouragement for us this morning. That if you're in Christ, no matter what you're experiencing at this very moment, Jesus truly accomplished what God the Father planned from before time began. He came and died to liberate you from sin. What love we see here. Right before you ever took a breath, I just get this in your brain this morning. Before you ever took a breath, before you ever had a loving thought towards God, he saw your need. He saw your abundant need for love and redemption. And not only saw that need, but he acted in mercy and lavish grace toward you. 
What a sweet reminder for us that if you're in Christ, man, before you could have even fathomed your need, Christ was coming to die. So Jesus was known before time began. But when he appeared, he appeared to die for his people. We've heard that all week long. We hear it every single Sunday. That's not all. That's not all. No, he rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And that's why we're here this morning to celebrate this glorious truth. Herman Bovink once wrote this. He said, resurrection is a declaration of the power and value of his death. The amen of the father upon the it is finished of the son. So let's look at the amen, the true and ultimate declaration of God's power and value of his death by looking at B, the lamb is risen. And so now what I want us to see here is that there are three main parts to the lamb risen in verse 21, right? Number one, he was raised from the dead. Number two, he was raised to glory. And number three, his resurrection was most certainly purposeful. So first, let's look with at he was raised from the dead. Verse 21 says, Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So Christ died as a ransom for his people. And they're made believers through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And it's through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, that they are believers in God the Father. And notice, God the Father is the one who raised his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, from the dead. So that's not only what we see here in 1 Peter, but that's what the New Testament claims. Romans 6, 4 says, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Acts 2, 32 through 33. This Jesus God, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. But don't miss the beauty of this fact, the one who died for our sin, he didn't stay in the grave. No, Jesus not only paid the blood price for sin, but then defeated death and reversed the curse of sin by rising from the dead on the third day. A historical and glorious reality. Listen to Luke 24, 1 through 11. Luke writes this. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be suffered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Right, so we have at early dawn, after Jesus was buried in the tomb, Jesus' followers, all these women went to prepare his body. What do they find? 
an empty tomb. And so as the followers stand before angels, they remember how Jesus prophesied of his own death and resurrection on the third day. He's going to rise. And so what do they do? They run. They go and tell all the 11 disciples. But listen to verse 12. Peter, he hears this. It says, Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. He believed what happened. Now, do you notice the significance of this verse? Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, saw with his very own eyes. He's an eyewitness not only to Christ's death, but also to his resurrection. So what we see in 1 Peter, the book that we're in this morning, is the eyewitness account of one of Jesus' closest disciples who makes it clear that Jesus rose from the dead. He defeated death by his very death. He's the conqueror of sin, death, and the devil. Not by laying in a grave for a whole bunch of years, but after three days, he rose. And guess what? He rose to never, ever taste death again. That's the glory of the resurrection of Jesus. One scholar wonderfully highlights death's demise, saying, death is the ultimate weapon of the evil evil one. Resurrection does not make a deal with death. What does it do? It overthrows it. That's what resurrection does. And that's exactly what Jesus did. By his very resurrection, the death Christ died for sin is made fully and forever effectual for those who believe in Christ. Death is overthrown through resurrection. And that's what makes this joyous day so glorious. He defeated, he conquered sin, death, and the devil. And so the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, is risen. But Peter adds that not only has he risen from the dead, but in an extension, Jesus was raised to glory. Right? That's what we see in the text. The Father raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, but then he was exalted to glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. He endured the sentence of death in the place of criminals to then be lifted up, exalted and vindicated by God the Father. But why is this placed in Peter? What is so crucial about this very phrase? Well, D.A. Carson explains that if Jesus really has risen from the dead, then he's approved by God. He's vindicated by God. His death was not to pay for his own sin, right? He's perfect. Or else he would be dead. So Jesus' sacrifice was so acceptable regarding God's plan that Jesus is not only resurrected from the dead as Lord over death, but he ascends to glory, approved by the Father as supreme Lord and master over death and the devil forever. So we see that he has been raised, he has been exalted, and now the Lord Jesus has been raised from the dead and raised to glory for a purpose. What's the purpose? What's the result? Well, we find it in the final portion of verse 21, don't we? Just look at it. So that, right? It's pointing back to the resurrection. So that your faith and hope are in God. And so Peter displays the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ as the action which leads to the result. 
The action leads to the result. What's the result? That their faith and hope are in God. Now, faith and hope here are seen as synonymous terms for the Christian. So Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the foundation for the living hope of the believer that's seen in verse 3. Right? We can't forget that passage. Verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so living hope right now is based on the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, there's no living hope. We aren't saved. The work of Christ is not complete. It's all in vain. Therefore, those who call themselves Christians have no hope. A.K.A. we're doomed. That's not the case, is it? No. Now notice the security of this result. Where are hope and faith located? It's located in nowhere else but in God. In the Lord who raised his son from the dead. Just think through this all with me. Peter's writing to people who are being persecuted. The Roman Empire has its hands wrapped around the throats of the church. And Peter gives them this glorious anthem of hope. Christ has been raised. Therefore... There's hope found in God for you. Oh, there's hope for you who are being beaten and battered. Death has been defeated, so these believers can endure anything because death is now a glorious promotion. Death has been defeated, so they can laugh in the face of the future because their future is hid with Christ forever. And that's a wonderful hope. And we're going to see that's not only for the church that Peter's speaking to, that's a hope for those who are Christians here this morning. During dire circumstances comes a glorious reminder of abundant hope in the Lord alone. And so if God would purpose, plan, and purchase a people, surely he can be trusted. So if he did what he promised to do, which he did, Surely he will continue to do what he's promised. He will raise us like the Lord Jesus. That's what's part of this glorious purpose he has here. So therefore, the Christian has hope that even in distress, their God remains good. He keeps his word. Every bit of it. And so the resurrection of Christ is purposeful. It's foundational to our hope. Our faith and hope are in Him so that even when difficulty arises, even when life seems meaningless, when our heads are spinning, when the baby won't stop crying, when the cancer continues to spread, our faith and hope are secure in the God of all things. Remember, yes, Jesus was crucified. Yes, God raised Him from the dead. But now we must not forget this truth. Christ's alive. He reigns over all things. He is alive even now. Therefore, our hope, Christian, is sure. So then as we move to point three here, because Jesus says we can be in reverent awe just like those that Peter's speaking to. We can be in reverent awe, emboldened and stirred by A, the anchor of hope that we have right now, and B, the reality of hope that we will enjoy forever. And so A, 
an anchor of hope. You know, one of the many foundational truths that we can bank on this morning as an anchor of hope is the very fact that because of Jesus' resurrection, sin has lost its grip on the believer. Sin has lost its grip on us. Just listen to Romans chapter 6, 4, and through verses 9 and 11. Paul writes, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And just here, verses 9 through 11, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Because the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so in Jesus' resurrection, he provides for his people new life. One that's raised from the dead with the ability to no longer live as those who are dead in sin, but to walk in newness of life. So Jesus secures our freedom, our liberation from sin, and empowers his people to walk in godliness, to be loosed from the grips of sin forever. He's delivered us by his resurrection from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. In fact, Wayne Grudem so helpfully suggests that this new resurrection power over sin in us includes power to gain more and more victory over remaining sin in our lives. So sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Because there's no dominion of death and sin over the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ canceled the power of sin and death by not only dying, but rising from the dead on the third day. Do you hear what I'm saying to you this morning? The Christian's faith is rooted, grounded, anchored in the glorious reality that through the resurrection, you have power over remaining sin. If you're in Christ, you have power. But you know what? I get complacent. I get really complacent in putting off sin. I can be quick to think, no, this is actually beyond my pay grade. Like, this just, I just can't kick this one. I can't possibly put off sin. I can't put it to death. And that's true. In and of our own strength, yeah, we don't have a shot. We don't have a chance at all. We can't do it on our own. But the glorious reality is that the Bible clearly states that the Spirit of God dwells in the believer now. We're not alone. So the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is working in us. We've got resurrection power, ladies and gentlemen. That's for the believer. Resurrection power. So therefore, by God's power, we can now see our sin. We can see it. We can hate it all the more. We can turn from our sin. We can desire the things of God. Something we could never do before. And not only that, but we can walk in newness of life. Not in death, but in light of his resurrection, walk in holiness. So we can ask ourselves hard questions. Like what areas do I see sin crippling my joy in the Lord? I can ask, where am I yearning after sin to give me rest rather than in Christ? And not only be convicted of our sin, 
but truly put that sin to death, confessing our sin to God and to one another and pursuing that which is holy in its place. You see, this is not optimism that we're talking about here this morning. Just as J.I. Packer said, we aren't on the balance beam teeter-tottering saying, "Mm, maybe I can put death to sin in my life, maybe. No, we now can have victory over sin as Christ triumphantly conquered sin and death through his resurrection. That's hope that we have in in the here and now. So because Christ rose from the dead, we have an anchor of hope. Sin has lost its grip on the Christian. But not only that, but because he lives right now, we have the hope that death is not the end. It is not the end for the Christian. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter gives much-needed ammunition to believers who are ostracized and discouraged, right? They're broken. And just listen to the great hope that he calls them to look to. It says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? The persecuted believer is to set their hope fully on the grace that will, future tense, be brought to them. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he's revealed. When he returns in glory. You see, in the first 13 verses of the letter, Peter has already tipped his hand to the reality of hope that's found in future days, which is promised when those who are in Christ are given grace upon grace when Christ appears in glory. It's a future reality for the Christian. So because of Jesus' resurrection, the Christian knows full well that death is not the end. In fact, Jesus' resurrection is a foretaste of what his people will experience when they're raised from the dead to eternal life with Christ in glory. And so Peter's audience and all believers right now are encouraged to fix our minds and our hearts on our future heavenly reward. To look to the one who's our hope. As we saw in verse 21, our hope is in God. The one who's going to keep us to the end. He purposed to send the ransom. He provided the ransom. And he raised Christ, the Lord Jesus, from the dead. And so we have Christian hope, not optimism. We have a hope beyond the grave. 2 Corinthians 4, 14 through 17 says, Knowing that he, God the Father, who raised the Lord Jesus, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Why? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Glory awaits. We're not what we will be. We are being changed, transformed right now for a future day. Our afflictions now pale in comparison to the weight of glory that will be enjoyed when we will rise with Christ, when we will be made new, when we will stand before the risen Lord Jesus in splendor and glory. And it's all because of what? 
It's because he lives. It's because he lives, which should transform our perspective on our circumstances, shouldn't it? All the stuff we're dealing with right now, just like Peter's audience, we can endure whatever may come, whether it be in the face of death or an unstable economy or the pressures of a job or your full course load in college, the pressures of parenting, whatever it may be. We have Christian hope that when we take our final breath on earth, we will take our first breath in glory. And just listen to what we will sing. Revelation, so helpful. We're going to sing with myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels this truth. Worthy. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive what? Power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. That's the future song when death is no more. This is the beauty of Easter. This is the beauty. He rose. He's alive. And glory awaits. May we be a people who remember the wondrous ransom paid for us and then the glorious resurrection that conquered sin and death on our behalf that we may live in reverent awe of the Lamb of God until he returns. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to be reminded this day of the saving work accomplished for us by the Lord Jesus. The very fact that he lived the life that we could never live. He died the death that we fully deserve to die. And he rose from the dead three days later, conquering sin, death, and the devil. God, we are in awe of your work. Lord, we pray that we would be recalling to mind these truths to our hearts, that our knowledge of what you have done impacts the way we conduct our lives in awe and reverence of you. Lord, you are worthy of our worship. We thank you for the risen Lamb of God, and it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.